You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Uh, welcome to the 10th anniversary Mockingbird Conference in New York City. Uh, you all look wonderful. There are two kinds of people here tonight. There are folks who are from New York. Uh, or its environs, and there are people like me who are not from here, and I tell you, we have to step up our game when we come into town. Normally in Waco, I wear overalls, um, and one of the straps is broken, it's just twine. Walking around today in the city, seeing people dressed really well, I was like, wow, they put effort into that. Even, I saw kind of a punk rocker sort of guy who was wearing a black t-shirt with a picture of Christina Ricci as Wednesday Adams. And I thought, I don't even know where to get a shirt like that. <laughs> you look great. Uh, I'm glad to be here, um, and I'm glad to celebrate with you. This is something of a birthday party. So happy 10th anniversary to Mockingbird, and, uh, and I brought you a cake. Let's see if we can do a little trick. So on three, I'd like everybody to blow out the candles. So here, one, two, three. High tech, it's very, very high tech. So we're 10, we're 10 years old. No, no, do you know what that means when you turn 10? It means puberty is coming. It's about to get really awkward for Mockingbird. So if it gets sort of uh, moody and snarky on the blog, you'll know why. So I prepared, I prepared some remarks um, when I, okay. So when I think back to the beginning, I can't believe how Mockingbird has grown. Just two guys named Steve in a garage in Palo Alto. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong origin story. Um, <laughs> Prop comedy. I'm like Carrot Top. Jacob Smith said, couldn't bring my chest up here, so that's as far as that's going to go. Uh, for those of you that didn't get that, uh, YouTube can solve that for you later on. Um, so, seriously though, Mockingbird started here 10 years ago. Uh, some people that had an idea to do what Paul Zoll said, to take some of these truths that are honored and cherished and life-saving and life-giving and to take them out um, into the world to try uh, to create some sort of platform for these ideas. Um, people like Dave and Sean and Jake and JD and some people here. Here's an early uh, brainstorming session. You can see when they were putting it together. We didn't know what we were doing. We had a, a blog spot. Some of you don't know what that is. That was an early blogging platform from Google. And what started with one post has now grown to 6,466 posts. Uh, 
that blog now, which started as something just some friends shared and were reading what we were writing and thinking, now gets 100,000 page views a month. Our first conference right here in this space witnessed 85 brave souls. And as of yesterday, we had 381 people registered, not including walk-ins. We have grown from a staff of one, um, and based on Dave's emotional maturity at the time, really like 75% of a person. That's <laughs> really what it was. Uh, to now a staff of nine. We've moved from New York as our headquarters to the bucolic hills of Charlottesville, Virginia. We have published 18 books, published nine issues of the Mockingbird magazine, released 350 podcast episodes, not including the Mocking, uh, the, uh, mocking Pulpit, the sermons that we release. And tonight, for the first time, I can announce that in 2018, we will be releasing a branded line of meal replacement shakes. <laughs> because nothing says freedom in Christ like a delicious shake for breakfast, another one for lunch, and a sensible dinner. You know, so it's, as I've said, our 10th birthday, and we uh, are having a party. This, isn't, this weekend will be an extended birthday party for Mockingbird. Uh, there will be food. We've had the candles and cake, but uh, one thing that you have to have a party um, are gifts. But I bet that you're here, whether you've been with Mockingbird from the very beginning or whether you've just discovered us and stumbled in here today. You're here because Mockingbird has brought the gift to you. So I want to reflect on that with you tonight, this gift. What is the gift that Mockingbird brings? What has made this organization mean so much to so many? Is it Dave Zoll's roguish charm? Partly. Sarah Condon's wit? More so. Episco Disco? Absolutely. But more than that, I think the gift, the bottom line, is the message over and over again. We've been saying something for a decade. We didn't invent it or come up with it, but people need to hear it. And they never stop needing to hear it. And they continue to come to us crawling on our shore, half-drowned, beaten, bruised, bloodied by the world, by the church, by circumstances, to hear this message. And you know what it is, and we say it in our mission statement. It's uh, connecting Christianity, or the Christian message, with the realities of everyday life in fresh and down-to-earth ways. It sounds really simple. But the genius, as far as I see it, is really in the second half of that. The realities of everyday life and the down-to-earth part. Because I know a lot of people and a lot of organizations, parachurch organizations and churches, that talk about Christianity. That's not the new part necessarily. But I don't know many people or many churches or many organizations that talk about what it means in everyday life 
I mean your real life. What Paul just said, not your tertiary or secondary pain, but your primary pain, your actual life. Is anybody talking about Jesus Christ in your living room or in your hospital room or in the AA meeting or in the jail cell or the inpatient psychiatric facility or the dorm room? A lot of people talk about Christianity, but not many of them get as down to earth. I mean, that literally means getting in the dirt. Not many people get into the inner life, what's going on inside. There was a singer-songwriter duo in the 90s called Rockwell Church, and one of the lines in their songs has stuck with me uh, since I first heard it. They talked about the never-ending battle between my ego and my id. Let's throw the libido in there too. The stuff that's going on inside you, the stuff you think you should do versus the things you want to do, and the conflict that's there. And so in that, in a world of charlatans, secular and religious, lots of people will sell you away to make your life better. The dread pirate Roberts talked about it, right? Life is pain, highness, he said. Anyone who tells you differently is trying to sell you something. But Mockingbird, refreshingly, tells the truth and gives people freedom to do the same. We preach the gospel. This is what Jesus did. It's what we've been trying to do. And so as we prepare for liftoff tonight, um, I want to talk about that message. I want to talk first about, however, how Christianity usually works. How it usually works. And I'll tell a little bit of my story there. And I want to talk about the message of the gospel, the antidote to that. Um, and I want to draw a little bit on the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. And then I want to talk about grace and practice. What does this actually look like? So Christianity, how does it usually work? Well, my story is fairly typical, I think. I met Jesus in high school. Probably some of you did too. Maybe a little earlier. Maybe you came to faith a little bit later. Somehow you became aware of this wonderful person. And uh, for me, it sort of wrecked high school uh, because this was, I mean, the Grateful Dead were still touring with Jerry. Uh, I could have gone off the rails and had better stories to tell at parties, but I found Jesus. And what happened to me was like in the Ben Folds song, you gave your life to Jesus Christ and you were not the same after that. At first it was great, community, fun, Great people, guitars, <laughs> and a sense, a real sense of love and connection that I had never found anywhere else. But then something happened, and it wasn't all at once, it was a gradual thing. Somewhere along the way, I realized that Christianity really made me uncomfortable about myself. Because almost everything that deep down I actually wanted to do was bad. Now maybe it was bad, but uh, I had this conflict. I was in what Liz Lemon called in 30 Rock a shame-based American religion. 
And how do I figure this out? You know, so outside in my life, I was a lot like Mumford and Sons. I was earnest and sincere and wholesome. You know, the banjos were involved. A lot of wool. That's what I needed to present to the world, but inside, a little bit different. This is Kiss. I realize there are millennials here. Some of you possibly were homeschooled uh, <laughs> and don't know who I'm talking about. This was a, a band, just so we're all on the same page, formed in 1975. Gene Simmons is the guy with the tongue, and this is their shtick. Um, uh, they have a song, which I think captures what was going on inside me. I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. Since that song was released, it has closed every single KISS concert. And that describes what was going on, this cauldron in me. And I knew that Jesus wasn't okay with that, at least that's the message I was getting. And um, you know what this felt like? I mean, this, you could cue the, the montage of my life from high school to college to those years in my early 20s to marriage and family and career. And all of it, I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. But there's respectable life that must be lived and Jesus who must be pleased and God who I must not disappoint. And so I'm holding on, holding on. And it felt a little bit like the pipe was starting to spring some leaks. And Christianity that I had been given or inherited was like spiritual duct tape. And I was patching it all over the place, trying to stem the flood. And I think at this point, it's no longer Christianity. That's not really the right name. I would rather call it um, MRP, Massive Repression Project. We talk about Jesus, but really it's about repressing, repressing everything. Um, and Christianity, uh, the form that I was given, taught me to master the art of repression. I had to laugh. I saw this cartoon a few years ago in The New Yorker. When I was your age, I'd mastered repression. And I had gotten pretty good at it. And um, what I think, though, this illustrates, it is not just a problem in the church, it's not just a problem among Christians, it's a human problem. We all repress stuff. And um, you can see this all over the place. This wouldn't be Mockingbird if we didn't draw on a little pop culture here. So let's visit the all-you-can-eat Golden Corral buffet of pop culture to look at examples that we know of repression, people trying to stuff what's going down, uh, uh, the, those invisible forces inside you. You can, if you want to go old school and vintage, you just look at um, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde, uh, the story of uh, Dr. Jekyll who becomes Mr. Hyde at night and does unspeakable things. Um, you can go to the 90s film uh, Donnie Darko, uh, with Patrick Swayze when the uh, sort of impressive, uh, charismatic, uh, um, uh, motivational speaker has a very dark secret. Uh, you can go to um, late 80s New Jack Swing, um, synth pop r and I'm talking about Janet Jackson's Control, classic album. 
And in the song Control, she describes how her mother and father tried to mold her and shape her. And her whole life was about maintaining control, keeping the duct tape tightly affixed to that pipe. And then she, she sings um, in the song Control, the title track, the first time I fell in love, I didn't know what hit me. And then the producer had the sound of a car crash in the background. I don't know if you've ever experienced the emotional equivalent of everything's going sort of swimmingly, and then you get T-boned by love. And suddenly, uh, you're no longer in control. Uh, uh, there's a scene in Chocolat, if you like American-British romantic comedies starring Johnny Depp and, um, uh, and Al uh, Oscar Alfred Molina uh, and um, Miss Tutu, is that her name? Am I getting that right? Um, probably not, and I'll get a letter from a lawyer, but um, in this film, it takes place in a little French village, and uh, there's a chocolate shop in the town, and Alfred Molina, the mayor, is deeply opposed to it because it represents all sort of, uh, I don't know, extravagant uh, decadence, and he opposes it every step, and there's this amazing scene where he finds himself locked in there in the middle of the night, and he wakes up the next morning in the shop window, having eaten the entire display with just melted chocolate all over his face. In Whit Stillman's film Barcelona, there's a scene in which a character describes the power of the forces that are at work inside human beings. And the character Ted tells his cousin, Fred, I'm beginning to reconsider my whole attitude towards female beauty. I think it's very bad. You see a beautiful girl and you're immediately subject to all these emotions, some of them very powerful, almost uncontrollable. Now maybe for you it's not the beautiful girl, you can fill in the blank with whatever it is you would like to fill in the blank with, but we have all been there. We're filled with these forces inside us. That was me, this is you, this is Janet. And what does, uh, we're all a little bit like um, the Gremlins. Have you seen Gremlins? Directed by Joe Meek, starring Hoyt Axton. The Gremlins, the Mogwai, are these beautiful, cute little creatures. They coo and they sing and they're adorable, little fuzzy little things. And they're given three instructions. You know, don't put them in the light, don't um, uh, feed them after midnight, and don't... Um, uh, um, uh, get them wet. And so they are obedient, they follow all those things, and the movie ends. It's very boring. <laughs> no, they do what people do, right? So they break all three rules, and the, these cute little gremlins turn into these horrible goblin-type gargoyle creatures that wreak havoc. And the, the whole movie is a, is a, is a clear uh, metaphor for all the stuff I'm talking about that is going on inside you and me. You have Gene Simmons inside you. You want to rock and roll all night. And so Jesus comes along and gives you the duct tape. But See, it's in the shape of a cross. It's Christian duct tape. But see how Gene's head is still quite visible on the upper left corner. See, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, and so what we do at this point, we take a page from The Edge. Uh, there are only two songs that The Edge uh, sang in, in U2's uh, major uh, career, Van Diemen's Land and also Numb. And in Numb, he says, don't speak, don't talk, don't think. I feel numb. 
Bono provides the falsetto, of course. So that's what we do. Just, just slap the duct tape on, hope it sort of works sometimes, at least so you can keep your job and keep your family and keep your eldership at the church or stay on the vestry or whatever. And, um, you know, just don't talk about the problems. And here, and this, this is what I had inherited, and it left me angry. It left me dry. It left me uh, short-tempered. Uh, Dawes, who's this incredible band from California, uh, who's on tour now, and if they are coming to your town, I highly recommend that you go see them. They just played in, um, was it, uh, um, uh, South Carolina? Uh, where does John's all live? Charleston, thank you. Yes, there it is. And, um, but go see Dawes. They sang uh, in the um, album All Your Favorite Bands. Somewhere along the way, the dots didn't all connect. The promise became regrets. Somewhere along the way, the dream and the circumstance continue their tortured dance. Dream is what you want. The circumstance is your reality, and it's a torture dance. You're trying to get them to work together, and it just doesn't come out right. Everybody here is on plan B or plan F or plan M. You know, it didn't quite work out. Uh, we all have had those moments in our faith where we are like Corey Feldman in Goonies, the scene at the bottom of the well where they find those coins, and Corey Feldman starts sticking them in his pockets. And Martha Plimpton says, you can't do that. Those are people's wishes. And he says, well, yeah. See this one? This one right here. This was my wish. And it didn't come true. So I'm taking them back. I'm taking them all back. So we've had those moments. You know what your wish was. And you know what is going on today. So the dots just didn't connect. Um, we, let's get a little uh, um, uh, from the Southern Hemisphere world of rock and roll, Midnight Oil, the greatest Canadian or Australian rock band of all time. Uh, Peter Garrett uh, also, by the way, taught Lord how to dance. If you don't know, just again, check that out. Um, uh, it's, if anybody here watched anything on TV, you would have thought that was funny, but I uh, will move on. Midnight Oil, uh, in um, their song, The Forgotten Years, talk about the desperate and divided years. And that says a lot, I think, because if you do this, you get desperate. If you live in this way of trying to just repress, if Christianity is the major repression project, if that's what your spiritual life is like, you are desperate because you're terrified somebody might find out, you're terrified the truth will come out, the wheels will fall off, something. You're desperate and you're divided. You, be you begin to split yourself into the public and the private. You no longer are integrated. And so, like Midnight Oil, you sing in from one of their other songs, um, Blue Sky Mine, quoting, sort of, St. Paul, who's gonna save me? St. Paul said, who's gonna rescue me from this body of death? And this is where the message that Mockingbird proclaims comes in. Um, and it's no secret, it's no new thing, it's no fresh idea, it is the actual freaking gospel. Now, I didn't know if I could say freaking here. We're in a church. I'm not at the pulpit, though, but Sarah Condon said the biblical word for donkey in the King James Version. 
you know what that word is? Uh, she said it at Tyler, so I figured this is Mockingbird, we can have a little fun here. Anyways, it's just the gospel. It's, it, and it's this understanding of human beings that we are actually human beings. There is a Gene Simmons living each one of us, or Joan Jett, or whoever, you, whoever is your patron saint of the human condition. Um, Jeremiah said it in chapter 19, verse 7, the human heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? St. Paul talked about it in Romans 7, the thing I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, I keep on doing. St. John said it in this first epistle. If we say we have no sin, we lie. We deceive ourselves. So this is the message. The message is, this is what human beings are like, despite what you may have heard. And this, that God actually knows that human beings are like this. That may be a shock to some of you. There are definitely some churches where I felt like God was unaware uh, <laughs> that people were doing some of the things that they are doing. Uh, Jacob Smith, the rector of this parish, says that all people are three days away from being in the tabloids. You are one errant text message away. Um, the governor of Alabama was just brought down because of an errant text message. He didn't know that iMessage shows up on all your devices. Not making this up. His wife has an iPad. You can connect the dots. God knows that human beings are like this. And then the final point, that God loves human beings who are like this. And if we wonder about that, because that sounds too good to be true, we're not really sure. We're, we, we are not sure if God could love the, the dark parts of who we are. Um, but in the book of Isaiah, um, and then quoted in Luke 22, in Isaiah 53 and Luke 22, we hear about Jesus, the Messiah, that he was numbered among the transgressors. Which means that when God counts the people, he, Jesus, when the, sort of the great divine uh, dodgeball picking ceremony, Jesus gets numbered among the transgressors. He gets picked by the losing team. That's what that means. So when I say that God loves human beings or like this, that's what, that's what we see in Jesus Christ. He gets numbered with the transgressors. He's with them. Flannery O'Connor beautifully described heaven as being full of battalions of freaks and lunatics. St. Flannery got that one right. And so what Mockingbird has done over and over again is to be a voice crying in the wilderness. This is what human beings are like. God loves human beings who are like this. And he loves you. And so what this means is, is there a part of your life that terrifies you? Is there a scandal that's waiting to happen? Is there some sort of massive failure that you're hiding? An ongoing, recidivistic, keep going back to the same thing again and again? Um, listen to This American Life, The Devil in Me. If you want to hear about people knowing what they shouldn't do and they keep doing it again and again. That's just a freebie. Write it down. Look at it on your own time. And what Mockingbird has done, and I think this is the, this is the big gift, um, and I hope you hear it tonight. Um, 
for me in this place in my life that I described and I would imagine for some of you in, in, in a world that always says hide, repress, don't talk about it this is the only place where I go and I sort of feel like I can be human where that there are people who actually have the same problems that I have there are people that are just barely holding on there are people that are, uh, that are uh, just uh, clinging to the cross um, and that's massively freeing and helpful to be reminded that Jesus loved sinners. But as LeVar Burton used to say on Reading Rainbow, don't take my word for it. This is what Jesus did all the time. And the story I said I'd mentioned uh, just briefly is the one from the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, the famous story where Jesus goes through Samaria in the middle of the day and under that hot Mediterranean sun meets a Samaritan woman at a well. And she is there because she is a social pariah. She is an outcast. Uh, you go to the well when it's cool in the morning or the evening, not in the middle of the day. You only go in the middle of the day um, because you don't want to be seen or people don't want to see you. Now you may say, well maybe she just ran out of water, there was some sort of emergency, she was having people over or whatever. But we find out later from the story, no, actually there was some scandal going on. Uh, Jesus at some point, they have a theological conversation and Jesus asked her for water and says he would give her living water and you can read it, but uh, what's the, the dramatic turn comes when the Lord says to this woman, uh, this is a good conversation. Why don't you call your husband and bring him over? And she says, I have no husband. I kind of imagine her saying it like a 1940s gangster. Uh, I got no husband, see? Uh, yeah, that's a ticket. I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, that's right. You've had five. And the guy you're with now, your current bae, he did not put a ring on it. <laughs> and so this woman has this experience where she is completely deconstructed and opened up to this Jewish religious leader. She calls him rabbi. She knows he's kind of this prophet type. He's actually one of the first people to whom Jesus confesses his identity as the Messiah. It's to this woman. Offers her this grace, this incredible blessing. And uh, I just observed two things about the work of our Lord here. That uh, the thing that sealed the deal for her was the fact that he brought her darkness into the light and wasn't shocked or horrified by it. We know that this was a powerful, cathartic, healing experience for her because the, she immediately runs into the village and in verse 49 she says, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Also, note that the reason she met Jesus at all was because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time after having made all the wrong choices. There are a lot of people that think if you want to get close to the Lord, you've got to take the right steps and climb the ladder and go up the mountain and read the Bible. And um, this is Indigo Girls. You go to the, to the, to the mountain. You go to the workout. You, you climb the ladder. 
You read up on revival, right? But because she had been on a downward trajectory, she met the Lord. So the message of Jesus is this, that your sin is not too much for him. It's not too much for him to handle. And it's actually the place where you meet God. So what have we said? And then I'll wrap up. We said that we get somewhere along the way, we pick up this form of Christianity. It starts out good, but then we realize that God is not really happy with us or not pleased with us or that we're not doing enough for him. The Lord, during a certain time in my life, the main thing that the God of the universe was doing, the one who decided on the speed of light and invented subatomic forces and came up with koalas, his main job, at least in my psyche, was to monitor the frequency and quality uh, and sincerity of my Bible reading and how often I was in church. That's, that, was, that was how I related to God, and we picked that up, and this is the massive repression program that we get on. And so um, what I've said is that Mockingbird, and uh, again, this is not our message, it is just the only message that God works in those places you have repressed, those things you don't want to see the light of day. Um, God works in the daily wreckage of your life, in your down-to-earth frustrations. So what does this look like? What might grace in practice be? I would like to offer you the spiritual discipline of doing nothing. Parts of the church will say, no, no, that is, the, is your spiritual disciplines are the only place where God will work in your life, or the main one, 95%. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that God will work if you read the Bible and if you journal and if you have an accountability group, maybe God will, will work in that, sure. Um, but please don't think that God only works in those rituals where you let him in. A mockingbird spiritual discipline might be what Richard Rohr talks about, the Franciscan writer, thinker. This is what we are doing, he writes, when we sit quietly in prayer. We are practicing underdoing and assured failure. We know that we need something more than a massive repression project. We know we need love. And that's our reminder. Elton John sang in an incredible video that stars Robert Downey Jr. that um, other men are liberated in places where I am devastated. I want love. Brene Brown, Houston-based Episcopalian, social science researcher about whom we've written extensively on the blog, says that human beings are wired for love and belonging. And I love this uh, little picture up here. It shows two people connecting. And what I like about it, it's not great art. I wouldn't put it in my living room. But what I like about it is that there's a human connection 
and that they're both lying flat on their backs on the ground. It is the opposite of your engagement photos or your wedding photos or your pre-engagement photos or your pre-baby photos or your post-baby photos. I didn't take any of these photos. When did this happen? It was like a law passed. Everybody. I'm There's some photography union, I think, it's behind it. Uh, those pictures are about triumph. Or like everything's okay. Uh, maybe there's a blooper reel you show your friends. But it's all about this perfect setting sun in a field where you're dressed like Mumford and Sons and uh, everything's great. But here they're lying on the asphalt and they see each other. I want to end with something that Mike Birbiglia's therapist told him. Mike Birbiglia is a comedian and storyteller. Uh, he's made um, some incredible movies. Uh, my girlfriend's boyfriend, is that right? And then also um, uh, Don't Think Twice. Birbiglia was talking to a friend of his on a podcast and he said, you know, my therapist described intimacy in this way. This is what we all want. And I don't know if there's someone in your life like this, but this is what we want. Intimacy is where you can tell somebody, another human being, you can tell somebody everything that's going on in your life, what you're actually thinking, and you can still call them the next day, and they say, oh, hi. For 10 years, Mockingbird has been that for me. And I hope for you, for as long as you've been on this wonderful trip. And it's been a reminder that that kind of love and intimacy, even if it doesn't exist where you live, at your address, around your Thanksgiving table, <laughs> it certainly doesn't exist there, I know that. That's what you have from God. That's what Jesus Christ shows us. As the old hymn says, there's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. For a decade, we have told you and will continue to tell you, God calls to you from that sea of mercy. Come on in. The water is fine. Thank you.